Here's how I want to start. I want to take you through a little history of toys. Uh, most of these are going to be toys or the kinds of toys I actually played with as a kid, which was a long time ago. So we're talking 1960s when I was playing with toys and in preschool or elementary school. First toy I want to show you is actually the oldest one I played with because it predated my birth. I think it was given to me by my grandparents because my parents played with the toy. And this toy we're going to call antique wood toy building blocks. I'm not sure if the picture up on the screen is an antique. It kind of looks like they lasered in the little pictures there. But you get the idea. I played with some of these. So they'd have a letter of the alphabet on one or two sides and then some pictures on other sides. They were all shaped as a cube and made out of wood. And the cool thing was you could put them together to make something like a tower or a wall. Next step in evolution was wood blocks that I played with a whole lot more than these because the next step was blocks of different shapes and sizes. So what you're seeing now is what I played with probably 50 times more than the blocks my parents played with that my grandparents gave me because these had triangles, rectangles, half circles. You could make great houses, forts, walls with these kind of blocks. Again, The wonder was taking different things and putting them together. A block by itself, boring. Put it together with other blocks, you get something like this. I think you could guess maybe the next stage in this evolution. And at the time, Legos came along. And now, opportunities multiplied like a hundredfold with what you could make. We're talking hundreds of shapes, sizes, and colors of Lego pieces. So now, I want to show you my favorite toy growing up. See if any of you guys can relate to this. My favorite toy growing up was a G.I. Joe. Now, let me talk about this a little bit here. This is a 12-inch G.I. Joe. This is a foot tall. This is not the cheesy G.I. Joes that came along later, which were just, I don't know, like four or five inches. These 12-inch babies had movable upper legs, movable lower legs, movable feet, movable neck, arms, hands. Maybe more to the point, you could do so much more with these than the little plastic guys that came along later. I mean, you could put uniforms on these guys, actually snap the buttons on them, put different kind of guns in their hands, backpacks on their backs. Um, I think one Christmas, my parents gave me some sandbags and a little camo netting and a Jeep for my G.I. Joe. So I'd head out to the woods, and I'd make forts out of rocks and sticks, and then I'd put the G.I. Joe in there and put the camo netting on top, put some leaves on there, and all you'd see is his gun sticking out from the sandbags. And it was great. So much fun. But again, the guy by himself or a little plastic gun by itself, boring as all get out. Put the pieces together. You've got a wonderful playtime. Next toy is one I didn't play with, but our daughter Danielle played with. And this is known by a brand name called Playmobil. These guys might look tall on the screen, but they were actually just a few inches tall, much shorter than uh, my favorite G.I. Joe. They all had this standard kind of C-shaped cup hand, but they could hold like a hundred different things in those hands. And again, there were so many neat accessories you could use for the little Playmobil figures. Finally, the last step, which I wouldn't call evolution but devolution, is that we've gone from three-dimensional to more of a 2D kind of playing for young kids these days, called a screen or a monitor. And now kids rarely, at least many kids, even go outside, not even really get on the floor to play. Everything's in 
in front of them on a screen. So, let's go back to the needed toys. Whether it was blocks or Legos or G.I. Joes, again, for like the fifth time, let me remind you, the wonder was taking different pieces and putting them together. Truly is that old motto, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, are all the pieces laid out together. We can do that in prayer. We put together different pieces in a prayer, one kind of prayer, and these different pieces are called word pictures. So if you're taking notes, this is on the back of your bulletin, and it's your first point. The building blocks of prayer are word pictures. Now, word pictures are not the only building blocks of prayer, and it's possible to pray a prayer and not use a word picture at all. So I'm not saying this is the only kind of praying that we do. But word pictures are a huge, huge part of the book of Psalms. And that's the series we're in as a church. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm 40. I'm going to show you two examples of word pictures. While you're turning to Psalm 40, let me kind of define a word picture. What kind of word is not a word picture? Well, let me give you an example. The word power or the word knowledge. Maybe let's stick with power. The word power is an abstract word and you don't really picture anything. Now, if I'm quick to follow up with the question, can you think of something or someone that is powerful, now you're going to have a picture in your mind. But we're all going to have different pictures, right? That's just evidence that shows you that the word itself doesn't call a picture to mind. You've got to do that follow-up question. What does power look like? What's an embodiment? What's an illustration? Where have you seen power? Now you're thinking of a picture, but again, we're all different. So power is not a word picture. If I were to say God's right hand, or if I were to say a fortress, or if I were to say a gladiator, or if you knew Old Testament imagery, if I were to say the horn of a bull, because that was a symbol of power in the Old Testament. Now we can all picture any of those items And we're all thinking of basically the same thing. Now, yeah, maybe my gladiator has a shield on his left hand. Your gladiator doesn't have a shield. But they both got swords. They both got some cool armor going on. Um, We're all picturing roughly the same thing when I say gladiator or right arm or fortress. So those are word pictures. So we're in Psalm 40. Let's look at a word picture here. Going to start right at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, there are actually multiple word pictures going on here. I mean, if you were to take a pen or a pencil and circle them, you'd come up with more than one. But look back at verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. So back to our bulletin. Here is example or picture number one. Salvation is pictured using the idea of space. This happens quite often in the Psalms. So think of different dimensions of space, space around you. Sometimes the psalmists talk about up or down, 
or high or low. We'll see that in this psalm. Uh, Or there's a horizontal dimension too, isn't there? Sometimes psalmists talk about being constrained or in a tight place as if there are walls just closing in on you. And the opposite of that is something good, which would be you got elbow room. And all I can think of here is the old Dixie Chick song, Wide Open Spaces. But we can relate to that because we live in the Southwest where we enjoy great, open, free space. The psalmists talk about that when they talk about salvation. This, in verse 2, is in all likelihood not a literal pit. For one thing, it's called a pit of destruction in the ESV, which is a good translation of the Hebrew. More importantly, we read later on in this psalm what the pit is. The pit is enemies that are seeking to kill King David, to take his life and destroy Davidic kingship, the kingship in Israel. So we could add this idea, this word picture of being down in a pit, we can add this to our prayer life, our prayer vocabulary, so to speak. So we could pray things like, God, I feel like I'm in a pit. Or how about remove the word like, God, I am in a pit. The walls are closing in, it's dark, and I am so alone right now. Will you lift me up out of this pit? I'll return and use that as another word picture a little bit later. To let me give you a better idea of what this pit is, we're going to do some kind of background work now. Uh, In the ancient Near East, people dug pits. And they dug them for the purpose of collecting rainwater. Here in Albuquerque, we get about eight or nine inches of rain every year. Uh, I don't know if you remember last year, but I think last year in the spring, we went, what was it, like five or six months with like two-tenths of an inch of rain. It's a horrible year. We only get eight or nine inches a year. And as you know, often it comes in the monsoon season. And for 20 minutes, we get this gushing downpour, and then the sun comes out, and the water's all gone. I lived in the east for a while, and there you can have a gentle rain that goes like all day, soaks into the ground, things grow up nice and green, but not here. Nice thing about living here, though, is that you can get an idea what it's like to live in Israel. In many parts of Israel, they get eight or nine inches a year. The southernmost part of Israel only gets two inches a year. Up north, they get more between 10 and 20. But the desert area around Jerusalem, about the same as what we get in New Mexico. So, they often dug pits to collect rainwater. They dug them in limestone. More often, they dug them in the same kind of stuff we dig in, which is a mixture of dirt, dust, and sand, and a lot of rock. And when they dug them, they would usually coat them with a lining of cement and then plaster so that the walls were real smooth. When we dig a pit for this purpose, we call it a cistern. Where it starts with a C. A cistern is an underground container or pit that is lined that collects water. So um, here's one thing about the pits that they dug they didn't have large openings, they weren't like 10 feet in diameter across the opening. For one reason, wind would blow dust and leaves in there, birds might come along and take a drink, and then what would they do? Leave their bird droppings in the water. Not a good thing to have a big opening for a cistern. Or a pit. So they had smaller openings. If you take a cross section of the cistern or the pit, it would look like a pear. And we put together a little graphic to show what that looks like. 
So it ha- if it has a small opening at the top, then you're not going to collect much rainwater, right? Wrong. They would try to dig these pits in an area where the surface of the ground would be graded or sloping a little bit so that the water would run off into your small hole, collect in your large container underground. Sometimes this small opening would only be three feet wide. It would have a cover. We would call it something like a manhole cover. So the openings for these cisterns were two feet, maybe three or four feet wide, and would look something like this. Again, small opening at the top, huge area, or a large area, below the surface. So a large amount of rainwater can run off into this. It's really the same idea as what I've got at my house. I've got two rain barrels. Call them barrels because they're above ground. And how do I collect water? Is it just the opening of the rain barrel collecting water? I'm not going to get much that way. But a lot of water falls on my roof, which goes into a gutter, which goes into a drain pipe, which dumps into my rain barrels. And when we get those 20-minute gushings of water in June, my barrels fill up real quick. Same idea. So here's what happened in time. Some cisterns or pits fell out of use. Now, why would you give up on a cistern once you put all that work into making it? Well, let's say people gathered into a little village and you've dug three or four pits or cisterns. Um, But now you've got so many people, you decide, we're going to dig a well and try to tap into groundwater. And you're successful. Now you might abandon your pits or your cisterns. If there was a manhole cover, what we would call like a piece of rock, like a flagstone, you'd take it off and use it for a building project because you really don't care about the hole in the ground anymore that you made. And this uncovered cistern would start looking pretty ugly pretty quick. Um, The picture up on the screen now is actually at the beginning stages of not being the best maintained. This is still in pretty good shape, although there are some cracks in the wall and you can see the water is not clear or pure at the bottom. A lot of stuff would happen if you abandoned a cistern. One, cracks would start forming in the plaster walls because you're not repairing it. What happens if you've got a crack? Dirt seeps in and insects crawl in. In fact, sometime, not now, read through Jeremiah chapter 2 where God uses a cracked cistern as a word picture for something. You don't have the cover on top, so animals are going to come in from the top This is a great home for them. they got shelter and water because, again, there's still water collecting in here. It's just brackish and dirty. No cover on top. You are going to have the wind blowing dust and leaves and bird bird droppings into the cistern, into the water. Here's the worst thing that happened. All that's bad enough. But in time, people thought, is there anything we can do with this hole in the ground? We don't need it for water. We don't care if the water gets dirty. Can we use it for anything? And they came up with the idea of what we would call a landfill or a dump. So this is the ancient version of a dump. Now, in the ancient world, people did not generate anywhere near the volume that we do in terms of trash. Maybe like one one one-hundredth of what we generate. But they still would eat a meal and have chicken bones that they'd want to get rid of. Or, more to the point, since they didn't have toilets and running water... They've got to get rid of human feces somewhere. They've got to get rid of poop. And so they can send a little kid with a bucket out to dump it in the cistern 
So if you get where I'm going here, in time, several inches, in more time, several feet, would gather at the bottom of these cisterns of the ugliest, nastiest stuff you can imagine. There's one more thing cisterns were used for when they were abandoned. Because they were lined with plaster and their walls were smooth, they made great jail cells. So if you ever read Jeremiah chapter 38, Jeremiah 2 talks about cracked cisterns. Jeremiah 38 talks about Jeremiah, that is the prophet Jeremiah, being lowered as a prisoner down into an abandoned cistern. And he sinks in something that, depending on your translation, is going to be called mud or mire or muck. Believe me, it's a whole lot worse than mud. That's the point. Now, we've done our little background work, or more than a little, a lot of background work. Let's cycle back into Psalm 40. And let's read those verses again, starting at verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He, God, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So God is in the business of lifting us up out of this kind of pit. This kind of literal pit and this kind of emotional or spiritual pit. But I might venture to say this, if you've been in a pit, if you feel like you've lived in a pit, a very deep and dark one for quite some time, for months or maybe years, it could be that you're focusing on someone or something other than God. Because if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, God has lifted you up out of the deepest, darkest pit imaginable. The pit of sin and suffering, the penalty for our sin and hell. He has taken us up out of that. How could any other pit Compare to that. So it could be if you're living in a pit and it's a sustained life in a pit as a believer, you need to return to passages like Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 where we read about all of the blessings we have in Christ, all of the different ways in which he has lifted us out of the pit of life without God. All right, ready for our second picture in Psalm 40. So if you're at Psalm 40, this is a few verses later. We'll start at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Probably means that the psalmist understands more about something now. God has enlightened him. He's taught him. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said... Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, what we will end up seeing here, go back to your bulletin and your outline, is this. Picture number two is going to be the cross, pictured using the idea of sacrifice. Let me read that first line for you again from Psalm 40, starting at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you, God, have not delighted. Now, the sacrifice here is an animal sacrifice. So let's be honest with each other this morning. 
uh, animal sacrifices, killing an animal not to cook it and, and eat it, but to drain its blood and somehow offer it on an altar is an idea that is foreign to us and probably even repulsive. So what is going on with this idea of animal sacrifices? Many ancient people groups did this kind of a thing. They sacrificed animals. Israelites did as well. So are Israelites just copying what their neighbors did or did God himself command the Israelites to do just what was kind of common in the people groups around them? So again, let's do some background work here. And our hope today is just to focus on two word pictures, but understand more about those two and then use them in our prayer life. Here's what happens with people groups outside of Israel. In Israel, God creates man and woman in his image. Right? Can you nod your heads? Outside of Israel, it's the exact opposite. Men and women create God or gods and goddesses in their, the human being's image. Therefore, gods and goddesses outside of Israel are like us, just more powerful. So you've got to fear them, you've got to respect them, but they're similar to us because we human beings created them. In what ways are they similar to us? They can be jealous, they can fight, they can die. They can get married, they can have sexual intercourse, they can do all of these things. Because they're like us, they look like us. They have arms and legs, they have mouths and ears. Kind of sounds like a song that Drew wrote that we sing here in church. And because they look like us, they also eat and drink. And so one way you could give a gift to a god or goddess was by giving them your best red meat, so to speak, by killing your best animal. Now, is this what the God of the Bible is about? Is our God saying, hey, I'm hungry, you got meat, I don't, go kill your best animal and either literally or figuratively or symbolically give me the meat? Is that what our God is saying? No. Here's one passage. If you're in the Psalms, you might flip up a few pages to Psalm 50. I'll start at verse 9. Here's one passage that answers that question. Is the Israelite sacrifice similar to other people's sacrifices in this sense? God says, Psalm 50, verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, of course God doesn't do that. Or look back at verse 12. God is basically saying here, if I were hungry, if I were like you human beings that I created, and if I were hungry, would I tell you? I created everything. I own everything. There's nothing you can give to me in terms of a possession or a thing. So the Israelites' way of sacrificing, very different. So what was God after then? Why did he command the Israelites to do animal sacrifice? Let me give you three reasons that are pulled from the Bible as to why the Israelites did this thing called sacrifice. And 
I'll repeat this at the end of each one to give you a little review. Reason number one, the sacrificial system helped priests to teach people about the relation between heart and deed. What's on the inside and what you do in terms of things like gifts or offerings. Now, the priests in Israel didn't always do this. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a guy named Eli, a priest. He has two sons. That means they're also priests, and they're pretty wicked. But the priests are supposed to do this. They're supposed to help people see the relation between their heart and what they're doing with their hands, their actions, their lives. There might be a parallel to us today in the church. We don't give animal sacrifices, but we give other gifts, like a a check that we write out or online gifts that we give to the church or to a missionary. If you had a close friend, also a Christian, or maybe your community group leader, and they came up to you and asked you, one-on-one in private, about your giving, they would be functioning in a priestly role, especially if they didn't care about amounts or percentages, but rather ask you questions like, tell me what money means to you. What does it represent? Tell me who owns things in your life. And tell me why you give. What is the motive for your giving? If that guy or gal is asking questions along those lines, they're performing a priestly function in your life. They're helping you see the relation between heart and what you do. So reason number one, the sacrificial system helped priests to teach people about the relation between heart and deed. Reason number two, The sacrificial system was part of what it meant to be in covenant. Now, covenant is a word we don't use that much in our day. It's an older English word. In fact, I've only heard it used in two settings outside of theology, and both we can pull some application from. Sometimes we use the word covenant with real estate or property, as in covenantal restrictions for a piece of land. This means, the word covenant, at least I think it means, that this is formal, it's in writing, and it has authority behind it. Okay, we can use that. Here's the second setting I've heard it used in, wedding ceremonies. So a minister says, we're here to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony, but sometimes he doesn't say holy matrimony, sometimes he says in a sacred covenant. Now what does covenant mean here in a wedding ceremony? I think it means this is a relationship, but it's not like dozens and hundreds of other relationships you're in. This is a really important relationship. It is so important that we mark it by a ceremony. In fact, let me venture to say that I think the best marriages are ones that are marked not only by a ceremony at the beginning, that we call a wedding, but repeated ceremonies, granted much less elaborate, through the life of the marriage that we might call traditions. All right, roughly, simplistically, same thing happening in Israel. There's a covenant God started with Moses that started with one big sacrifice and was maintained by more animal sacrifices. A long-term covenant. There was a new covenant, another long-term covenant, inaugurated with Jesus, He is the sacrifice, but that sacrifice took care of sin once and for all. There were no more sacrifices for sin 
after Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, what we read in Romans 12, the first few verses, is that we voluntarily give our lives as a living sacrifice in thanksgiving for what we've just read about in Romans 1 through 11, this gift of Christ, the gospel, the good news. So this idea of a long-term covenant, other people groups didn't have that idea. Here's the way their sacrifice went. It was much more in the here and now. So take our average Babylonian blue-collar worker. Maybe he's without a job. He finds his best cow, brings it to the temple, kills it, says to his god or goddess of choice, here's some good meat for you. Please give me a job. It's basically a bribe. So reason number two, the sacrificial system was part of what it meant to be in covenant. Reason number three, the sacrificial system produced a longing for the end of all sacrifices, which we know is Jesus. So I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Let's get back into Psalm 40. That first line in verse 6, again, was, In sacrifice and offering, you, God, have not delighted. So after our little background on what sacrifice is, I think there are two reasons why God doesn't delight in sacrifices, even though he commanded them. The first idea of these two, and this occurs in over a dozen verses, is that it is not merely the act or the outward part of a sacrifice that pleases God. So if you're following in your bulletin, here's your next part. An act by itself is meaningless. It's the heart that matters. And this is the active part of sacrifice. So if you were going to sacrifice your time, for instance, to a cause, in God's eyes, it's your heart that matters. Maybe the best extended treatment of this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7, where Jesus looks at a number of things we do, like pray or give money. And he says it's very possible that the giving of money to a good cause is meaningless in God's eyes. It's as if it never happened. Why? Because of the motive. Maybe you're doing it for the wrong reason. Maybe you give money so other people see and know that you give money and they admire you for it. So the thought of verse 6 in Psalm 40 is more along these lines. In sacrifice and offering, here's the thought, as acts in and of themselves, you, God, have not delighted. There's a second reason why I don't think God delights in sacrifice. Next part of your outline. The body by itself is incomplete. It is a broken spirit that matters. And this is more the passive part of sacrifice. Meaning, this is what we'll kind of end up with in part. For Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, there's an active part of his heart in longing for God and being pure and perfect. And there's a passive part where he lets the Father punish him, put him to death, pour out his wrath, the Father's wrath on him. He allows himself to be broken. Uh, A great passage about this inner brokenness that is needed for sacrifice is in Psalm 51. So again, a few pages after Psalm 40. Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. All right, let's go back to our psalm for today, Psalm 40. After verse 6, two more verses. Verses 7 and 8 say this. Then I said, now this is David speaking here as the guy who wrote the psalm. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, again, David's writing the psalm, and David is saying, it's written about me in the scroll of the book. So where did we have something written about David, especially something about David seeking God's will and delighting to do God's words? You might think Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, those historical books, but those haven't been written yet. I mean, David's kind of early on in that big history of Israel. Here's where I think David is thinking about as he talks about God writing about him, David, in a scroll. Maybe don't turn there, just listen to me read it. I think it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Hundreds of years before David was born. In Deuteronomy, God says this. When he, this is going to be the king over Israel to come, sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So let's try to put all this together now. David says this, I know what you require, God. You require a pure heart, a heart that longs for you. You also require a sacrifice to be broken, to allow itself or himself or herself to be broken by you. Not just in body, but in soul. One more passage we're going to look at. These verses in Psalm 40, 6, 7, and 8, they're quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. So again, maybe just listen, look at it up on the screen. And let me read to you Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, here's Jesus' quote of Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So here we have in Hebrews 10, the perfect sacrifice. I think last part of your bulletin, a description in Hebrews 10 and in Psalm 40, of the inner and outer aspects of Christ's sacrifice. So David says, the guy writing Psalm 40, it's original context, it is written of me in the scroll of the book, meaning I think Deuteronomy, that the king of Israel would love God and follow his words, have a longing for him, strive to have a pure heart. Jesus applies it to himself. And of course, Jesus is the last and great Davidic king, 
king over Israel. Jesus says, I can say the same thing of me in the scroll of the book, which in this case would mean the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament at least. It is written of me, a coming Messiah, a sacrifice, a lamb, dying on behalf of God's people so they could have salvation, forgiveness. In the whole Bible, we read about this. Someone who has a pure heart for worship is someone we long for because we know we don't have a pure heart. We want that other person to pour their pure heart into ours, and we have that in Jesus. But second, and more importantly, we need a broken sacrifice, someone who will allow himself to be broken by the Father, punished, put to death as our substitute so that we can be saved, delivered from hell, from sin, from death. So, let me end with some practical suggestions because, again, today is teaching about prayer. That's what we're trying to do. Like Drew and Caitlin did earlier, I want to encourage you to use word pictures in your prayers. You could do this either in a planned way with several building blocks where you say, I'm going to include these four or five word pictures in my prayer today. Or it could be an unplanned way, an impromptu manner, where you start praying and then you pull from different word pictures that you've come across in Scripture. Here's a great way to collect word pictures. Do a one-year Bible reading program. You can either buy a one-year Bible in various translations, and if you've done this before, you open it up, you find today's date, and under today's date, say it's February 2nd, you have two or three chapters of Old Testament, one chapter perhaps of New Testament, maybe 10 or 20 verses from the Psalms, and sometimes one proverb. If you don't want to spend the money on a one-year Bible, man, there are dozens of places on the Internet that give you plans and programs for reading through your Bible in one year. In fact, what I think I'll do is have Trent uh, put this up on the blog this week. I think he actually did that like a month ago, but I'll have him repost one or two good sources for reading through your Bible in a year. Here's what I'd like you to try to do. Take a notebook... Put three headers on the notebook or three different sections. Here's your first header, God. As you read through the Bible, write down word pictures that are used to describe God. We heard Drew and Caitlin pray through several. We sang about God as a rock and then they prayed through God as a king and a father and a shepherd and a warrior. Those are all word pictures we should be using in our prayers. Second header or second section, salvation. Salvation is pictured using dozens of word pictures, one of which would be lifting us out of a pit. Then we give you a few theological terms, uh, but they're all based in word pictures, even though they sound pretty theological. How about redemption? That sounds like a church term. To redeem was an actual literal act in Israel of bringing back something that is lost or hurting or in harm's way. So you would redeem an orphan by doing what? Adopting the orphan. You would redeem a widow by what? Marrying her, providing a home, security, safety for that single woman. So it made sense to say in salvation, God the Father redeems us, brings us back to himself as if we were a lost orphan or a woman longing to be married. Here's another R word, reconciliation. Man, that doesn't sound like a word picture. It is. 
To reconcile means to take two things that are separate and even opposed to one another and bring them back together. And God does that in salvation. Here's another R word more in our everyday language. Rescuing. Paul says at the beginning of Galatians, God has rescued us. Well, I can picture rescuing someone in trouble who needs his or her life saved by someone else extending a hand for salvation. Here's another R word, regeneration. And that sounds theological. Well, it just means bringing to life something that is dead. Can I picture a dead guy? Yeah, I can, because I've seen several of them in my life. Can I picture what it is to be alive? Oh, I sure can. I can picture that. Well, God says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead. And God has made us alive in Christ. By his grace, through our believing and trusting in his work on the cross. We are adopted. There's another word picture that happens in salvation. Uh, There are dozens of word pictures that describe salvation. Even a word like justification, we're justified, has a legal setting, a courtroom setting. So you can picture something happening in a courtroom when God justifies us in Christ. Third heading or third category, you, me, us, Christians. The Bible uses over 50 word pictures to describe us as believers. Let me give you just three or four. We are the bride of Christ. Wow. Man, I'm going to have to go back to Ephesians 5 and read about that to see how a bride is to relate to her groom or her husband. And that would be how we as a church respond and act towards Christ. Uh, We are priests, all of us believers. Wow, I better review what it means to be a priest because that's who I am. It's part of my identity. And Maybe I should pray and ask God to help me be a better priest once I find out what that means. Uh, We are living stones. Ryan has mentioned this a few times in the past few years. Built up into a holy temple, but it's not a literal temple. It's the church. What does that mean? That I'm a stone that's part of a wall that's part of a building for God's presence. I should pray to be more like that. And here's maybe the most common one in the New Testament. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Wow. So that means people in my community group, or even you and I in church right now, if we call the name of Christ, you're not just an acquaintance. You're not even just a friend. You're my brother or sister, maybe even closer because of our tie in the Holy Spirit, bought by the blood of Christ, than I am to my blood brother. So collect these word pictures, write them down, then use them in your prayer life. It's like putting together blocks. So let me close by trying to illustrate this. So I'm going to pray a prayer of three building blocks here. I'm going to start with a pit. I'm going to talk about Christ's sacrifice. That is a picture of salvation, the sacrifice of an animal like a Passover lamb. That is one way of understanding what happened on the cross. Uh, And I'll end with God as a shepherd. Now, let me preface it a little bit. I thought, man, what's happened in the past few days that has been some kind of a pit to me? And I didn't even have to think more than a second. So this is not going to seem like a deep, tart pit to you. um, But it's this ebb and flow of me moving in and out of making food an idol. I'm sure none of you can relate to that at all. 
for me, it's sugar. It's like cookies or candy. I mean, if you made a platter of soft, big chocolate chip cookies, like 400 calories a cookie, and showed me that platter, my mind would say, take one cookie, enjoy it, be thankful for God for a good cook, and enjoy your day. I would take eight of them. (laughs) And then, because God created these wonderful things called bodies, my body would hurt. And this is what literally happened a few nights ago. I went to bed and my stomach was sick because I had too much candy. So, yes, I know that does not compare to, seriously, a mother or father that you've just learned has stage 3 cancer. I mean, you're going through a much deeper, darker pit than I am. But it hurts more emotionally and spiritually than physically that there are times in my life when I worship food and enjoy God instead of worshiping God and enjoying his his created food now and then. I mean, that pains my spirit more than the stuffed stomach and overdose of sugar paints my body. So that's the pit I'm going to pray through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed to us yourself, not fully, but God, in this book we call the Bible, you've given us so much about yourself and you've used word pictures that we can see and understand You've told us about yourself, about the process of salvation, and about our identity and how we relate to you and to each other. So we start by thanking you for your revelation. Father, I pray you'll forgive me for worshiping at times food. And I guess I should thank you that I feel as though I'm in a pit after that happens. I thank you far more that you've shown me a way to come out of the pit, and that is to revel, to rejoice, to meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We close our service with reflecting on how great your love is and this great and pure and holy and perfect sacrifice that Jesus had the purest of hearts, and that he allowed himself to be broken. That he went through much more than his physical death. Horrific suffering as the sins of the world were poured out on him. And he paid the penalty for my sins. Thank you that he was like a Passover lamb whose throat was slit and blood poured in order to save our souls. And Father, I thank you that you are the good shepherd. I feel so much, and maybe all of us do in this room, like a stupid sheep. Not strong, not wise. A sheep that could easily get lost and hurt. But Father, thank you for the reminder in Psalm 23 that all I really have to do is follow you, follow the good shepherd, Jesus. Follow close, keep him in sight, follow at his heels. And he, with his rod and staff, will protect me, sometimes discipline me, lead me beside still waters. The goal being that I could feast at him, my good shepherd, at his table forever. Thank you for such glorious word pictures. And I pray that you'll help us to use them more in our own prayer lives. In the good and great and glorious name of Jesus, amen.